You see on the screen the book of Galatians, if you would turn there with me this morning. It is uh, my delight and privilege to open this book with you, and I'm so excited about it. As I read it this week, I started to bring you down my my copy. I might show it to you next week, but I always print it out. I print out the whole book, and you can read this book relatively fast. Ten minutes, you'll have it read. Do that tonight when you go home. Read the whole book. I probably read it ten times, I'd say, uh, just kind of in a row. I was looking for certain things, and I had to search the whole church <laughs> looking for highlighters, different colors. I needed those colors, and I couldn't find them. But as I began to study this and read it, I mean, just over and over, and I would mark words, you know, and I'll tell you what some of them were as we go through, and I would mark these words, and and I started to see these colors just reappearing over and over over again. And, and, and it began to just well up in me what this book is about, and it's, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it's so wonderful. It is, uh, because it's the gospel. That's what it is. And it's, it's gonna be so great. And I trust it'll be helpful for each and every one of us as we start it. Today we're not gonna get too far expositionally, but next week we'll kick that off a little stronger. Um, this morning, I, I might get to the first five verses, I don't know. But what I want to do this morning is give you a little overview and a background, kind of kind of set the stage, you know. You need to set the stage for what we're about to enter into. And it'll give you an opportunity to read the text in advance, which I strongly encourage you to do. So I should probably read at least verse 1 and 2, and then, no, let's read, let's read down to verse 5. And then I want to pray with you. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we bow our heads and hearts and minds this morning in awe and humility, oh God, because of what we just read. That you, the God of eternity, the God who never had a beginning and never will have an ending, the God who was and is and is to come, the God who never changes, the God who is holy and just and powerful and true, the God who is loving and merciful and gracious, has acted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, to deliver us. And it was your will, it was your purpose. Oh God, we just thank you this morning. My prayer is, and I trust others here this morning, we ask you, Father, to do something through your word today and in this book of Galatians, as we go through it verse by verse, oh God, we ask you to move in our hearts, to change us, to strengthen us, to edify and build us up in the faith and in the understanding of you and of your plan and purpose and of Christ and the work of the cross and grace and faith and salvation and sanctification. God, we just ask for your help. We pray like The reformer did, Martin Luther, who asked you to bless the preaching of the word. And he said, I can't make it turn out well. Won't you 
Father, make it turn out well. Won't you, God, be pleased to take your word and and save souls through the preaching of the book of Galatians and transform lives, hearts, and help us to understand what happened to us as Christians and help us to understand how to live as Christians to your honor and glory. For the good of this church and for the good of future generations and maybe nations around the world. So come, we pray. And bless your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Galatians, as you can tell, is exciting to study. It's the first of Paul's letters that we have left. He might have wrote more than the 13 that we have to these Gentile churches. But we don't know that he did. And we don't have any record that he did. This is the oldest existing letter that we know of that the Apostle Paul wrote it is in in the history of the church this book is um just has a remarkable story in history not only no doubt to the churches who first received it but to subsequent generations even up to us today and in times past it has been remarkable pastor john MacArthur writes the book of galatians has been called the magna carta of spiritual liberty, the battle cry of the Reformation, and the Christian's declaration of independence. That's a lot to say about a book so small. Six chapters, it's been broken up into the the book of Galatians. Many church historians maintain that the foundation of the Reformation was laid based on the writings of the great reformer that I talked about to our father in prayer, Martin Luther. As he wrote his commentary on the book of Galatians. As he was given this opportunity to handle the word and lecture on the word. Eventually he was handed that responsibility. And began to preach in the town church. Maybe above all of the books close to Romans. Maybe even more than Romans. The book of Galatians God used in this reformer's life and heart. To radically transform him and to do an impact that, my friends, is simply incalculable today. You and I just can't imagine the benefit that we have, we are receiving right now where you're sitting because of the Protestant Reformation that happened in the 16th century and even before. Martin Luther writes about this letter. He says, quote, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. Now, when you talk about a book of the Bible like that, it means something to you. This this is mine, he said. He says, to it I am, as it were, in wedlock. Galatians is my Catherine. That's his wife's name. And it was out of Martin Luther's careful, submissive study to the Scripture, especially the book of Galatians, that Martin Luther discovered the true gospel. Rather, rediscovered it. It had been lost. Just think about that for a moment. For almost a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church had lost the gospel. I should have put I should have put where he or his conversion. You need to read his conversion. So wonderful. 
It's just like mine and yours if you're born again. But he was talking about a careful, you know how he was born again? Through a careful study and look and study of the scripture. He said, I was looking at that in Romans. He says, you know, the just shall live by faith. Paul says that in Galatians too. The just shall live by faith. (laughs) And he had been trying so hard to be accepted by God based on his personal performance. Are you doing that? Martin Luther would crawl on his hands and knees on the hard floors and up the hard stairs. And he would lay all night in the cold and he would go without food. All just hoping God would accept him. Until looking at the word of God, he says, it it was as it were the heavens opened up. And he saw for the first time. With spiritual eyes, the just shall live by faith. And so, contrary to the thousand-year-old Roman Catholic teaching of salvation by works, he was saved. And the Reformation in great force began with him. Let me turn now to an, a historical background for just a moment. Now, the name Galatia... Is derived from the Gauls, the Celts, who settled in Asia Minor. They had been kind of plundering for centuries the Greek and Roman empires, and they finally kind of settled, and they became Roman-ruled. And under Roman rule, the original region of Galatia was made part of a larger province. So if you turn to the back of your Bible, you can probably find, say, a map of Paul's first missionary journey. If you go back there, and you could, you could, you could see it. And it would show you these places on the map. And it's it's kind of cool to go back there and look at it. And you'll see that region that's marked Galatia. Well, that happened because there was an ethnic group. This, this particular ethnic group lived there for so long and had such an abiding presence and impact upon that region that it eventually became a Roman province, a larger province, but the same Name That is modern-day Turkey. So if you look at a, a map today, a modern-day map, you'll see that very location of Turkey, and you'll be able to see a, that part of Central Asia Minor. It encompassed an area of about 250 miles north to south and 175 miles east to west. One of the interesting things about it, This took place, by the way, in the first century. So this is relatively new happenings for the the writing of the book and the the history of the people and that region there. It's relatively fresh, even for Paul, that this region would be a Roman province called now by that same name, Galatia. In Paul's day then... This area had both a ethnic, geographical, and political geographical referent to it. So you have the ethnic Galatians that kind of settled there, and then this larger province that became known by the same name that Paul actually lived and was close to that. I, just in passing, I think about it. If you go back to that map again, you can you can see... That Paul was from Tarsus, which is just south. So if you look on the map, uh, the one I'm looking at has it 
horizontal here in Galatians, and then down to the right, just a little piece, you'll see Tarsus there where Paul himself originates from. Now, on the first missionary journey of Paul and also Barnabas, they were able, by the grace of God, to establish four local congregations, four churches in the southern part of the province, in the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. We can find this if we take just a brief excursion over to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And this is significant for us to do, I think. If you're like me, you want to know if, if it's contained in the book of Acts where these churches were planted. Let's go back just a moment and take a gander at Acts chapter 13 beginning in verse 14. So as Luke, the historian, records the missionary efforts of, of the Apostle Paul and that band of missionaries that, that traveled with him often, it says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them. I love that. That's funny. He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And then he had had removed him and raised up David to be, be king, of whom... He testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Now, let's just stop right there and realize if you're wondering about the way that I'm preaching this message, it's exactly in in essence the way that Paul preached this message. He took them back into the history of the people of God and brought them right up to Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus As he promised, verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, the people who read about the prophecies of the Messiah every Sabbath were the ones that fulfilled the scriptures that put Jesus Christ to death. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is, read that word, freed, freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the what? Law of Moses. Very significant in what he's preaching and the book of Galatians. Beware, therefore, lest what I said, what he said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath and after And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews, another significant group of people, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. In the book of Galatians, this is exactly what we're going to find. The people attack the gospel and they attack the man. They attack the apostle Paul. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. And the leading men of the city. That's who you get, right? If you want to stir up a controversy. If you want to get a gossip fest going, you start with the leading women. And what does it say? The leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out of their district, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And you can look on the map, see how close it is. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, spoke in such a way that a great number of both of Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained a long time, 
speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some of the apostles. But in the temples made by both Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was a cripple from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are only men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But look who comes. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adela, and from there they sailed to Antioch. And all of these, beloved, all of these are churches in the province of Galatia. So you have a multitude of believers that in this very circumstance comes to faith in Jesus Christ and become followers of Jesus. And they apparently became sort of a regional body of believers because this is the only book, the book of Galatians, that Paul actually addresses to more than one congregation like this. To the churches of Galatia, this province of Galatia. Now it doesn't say which one of these churches or which of these churches that he's writing this letter to. It's one of the great mysteries of studying this book. But it seems to me very plausible that it would be the very churches that we just read about. 
Considering these are the ones that we have explicitly in the Bible that spoke, that Paul ministered to, and the churches were planted and established by the Apostle Paul and his missionary team. So while he was in Galatia, Paul nearly lost his life. It was in this area that he was stoned and thought dead and yet lived. And according to 1422, he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. If you were to turn to the book of Acts in chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, you'll find that Paul is on his second missionary journey and he visited the Galatian churches with Silas. So in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of the brothers at at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles, the elders who were at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. And so we have the planting of the churches and the strengthening of the churches after what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So let's go back and finish up. Let's turn a corner here. We have the churches established. We understand that Paul ministered to these churches more than one time. Do you remember what he preached to them? Do you remember what challenges he faced? You'll need to remember them. Because when we read this book, you're going to see exactly what the Apostle Paul went through. You're going to understand the challenges that he faced, the challenges that the churches of Galatia faced, and the challenges that we face this morning. We face the same ones. Why did Paul write the book of Galatians? Let's start a corner. This is... My point number three, the purpose of the writing. The first one was the introduction. The second was the history, the historical background. The third, the purpose of the writing. The Jewish leaders, as you heard, stoned Paul at Lystra and no doubt continued their work. The Jews, by the way, would be better known or for you to write down the word Judaizers. Judaizers. What were these guys? These were Jews, for sure, ethnic Jews, Israelites, but not all the Israelites, not all the Jewish people were these people. These were individuals who were tools, listen to me, of Satan to corrupt the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they sought to proselytize anybody and everybody that they could. And turn them to Judaism. Turn them to a practicing Jew. Okay? This is really significant. And so what they would do, as you saw, as I read, they would follow the Apostle Paul. He would go preaching the gospel and they would come behind him and try to tear down what he had been trying to build up. And they were relentless enemies of the gospel. And tools of Satan to sow confusion and discord in those and many other infant churches. 
They were causing confusion in the churches and they were seriously distorting the gospel of Christ. Look at Galatians 1 8. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. The apostle says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. They were preaching another gospel that Paul says is not really another gospel. It's not good news at all. And it was corrupting the minds of many. What was the teaching? I want to give it to you in brief here this morning and we'll we'll think about it later as well. What they did was they taught the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ that they must become Jews by circumcision before they could become Christians and that all Christians, whether they were Jewish or Gentile alike, were righteous before God only if they remained bound under the Mosaic law. I probably need to shorten that up for you. The Judaizers, in essence, taught the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that in order for them to be saved, justified, and in order for them to be accepted by God, they must come under the law of Moses and remain in submission and obedience to the law that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses. You need to let that hit you. You must personally perform the work of the law in order to be saved and justified in the sight of God. Look in chapter 2, verses 3 and 3 to 5. Galatians 2, 3. But even Titus, who was with me, this is the first time you find it, where he talks about this, was not forced to become what? Circumcised. Circumcision, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, there they are, who slipped in to spy out our, read that word. Freedom, how many times do you think that word's in this book? It's in there. The word free or freedom is in there at least, let me see, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, at least 11 times. Free or freedom. They slipped in the spy of freedom that we had in where? In Christ Jesus. So that they might bring us into what? Slavery. To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the what? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You could go on, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? The apostle Paul, uh, Peter? You mean you're going to stand up to him? Why? Because he stood condemned. For before men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the what? Of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew act like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And I could go on. Three, chapter three, verses three to five, four, verses eight to eleven. 21 to 31, 5 verse 1 to 4, 6, 12 to 13, all of those deal with this issue, this same issue of the Judaizers who were trying to get the people to live by a code or a list of rules that was given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So Paul reminds them, 
In chapter 1, verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again now, the, the apostle reminds the believers, if any man is preaching to you another gospel, contrary to that which you've heard and received, let him be accursed. The false teachers attacked Paul himself, not only his message, but what he said, but him himself, seeking to undercut his authority as an apostle. Now, the reason that that's significant is because chapter 1 and 2 is primarily taken up with Paul's personal defense of his apostolic authority in the church. So if you want an outline of the book, I can tell you really quickly, it's only three parts. It's personal, it is doctrinal, and then it is practical. Paul does this all the time. His letters start with theology. Often this one starts with this problem in the church and then his personal defense of his apostolic authority. And then he turns to a doctrinal section because, listen to me, theology drives your life. What you believe drives what you do as an individual Christian and as a church. And so Paul saves the practical until the last because it is the theology in the middle. It is the truth of what God has done and accomplished in Christ that drives and gives rise to the way you live your life as a Christian. And we're going to see this in detail as we go through this book. So he gives this personal narrative, as it were, testimony of his apostolic authority from Christ. You can see it there in verse 1 of chapter 1. An apostle, he says. And then he puts in kind of parenthesis. Ah, not an apostle sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He continues through chapter 2 with his God-given mission and authority to establish this right doctrine among the churches. There are four major things at stake in the book of Galatians. Number one, the gospel. The gospel. What was going on among the Galatians was central to the gospel, the good news, the message of the Christian church was at stake. In fact, the very heart of the gospel was being undermined by the false teachers. The gospel of the grace of God was being trampled and in its place was being offered a system of works and personal performance that will condemn you to hell. That's what was, that's what is at stake in the book of Galatians. And my friends, let me tell you this. That is at stake in every generation of Christians. The gospel. By the way, we we just went through that series on the church. Who does Paul say is ultimately responsible for making sure these false teachers get out of the pulpit? The elders? The leaders? The church? You know, did you catch that? In, in, in chapter 1? He says, I'm astonished at you, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. This is verse 6. In the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say now I again, if anyone is preaching to you, church, a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The church has to stand up and recognize that the gospel is being perverted and distorted. And make a correction, even if it, listen, even if it is your own pastor or an elder in the church. It's the church. The majority of the members of the church has to do that. So that's the first major thing that's at stake is the gospel. 
It's the same thing. This is why it's so connected to church history. You look back at the Reformation. What was lost? (laughs) What was lost was the true means to have a peaceful relationship with God. And God brought it to light. Secondly, the second thing that's at stake is eternal life. Eternal life. The people of Galatia were in danger. They were in eternal danger if they were seeking to establish and maintain a relationship with God through submission and obedience to the law of Moses. They were in danger of eternal damnation. Eternal life is at stake. Listen, when the gospel is at stake, eternal life is at stake. And that means, listen, souls are at stake. Number three, ultimately... The glory and the reputation of God and the Lord Jesus Christ was at stake. The word Christ or Christ is used 38 times in this book. It was the most marked significant word. You know, you've got other little words like to, you know, and, and, and the that are in there a lot. So you kind of discard them and you begin to look and see the words that make up this book. And 38 times it was at the top. He uses the word Christ or Christ. Why? Because what is at stake at the churches of Galatia was the reputation and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ that we proclaim in the gospel was being distorted and destroyed. And the reality of the accomplishment of God the Son was at stake and on the line. Number four. In a practical way, and this is a part of the book for sure, what is at stake is the freedom of those in Christ. The freedom of those that are in Christ. Listen, the those who were truly born again, those who were actually in Christ, were in danger of becoming confused and missing out on the full and lasting joy and flourishing that was theirs in Christ. They had been given freedom and these Judaizers were seeking to bring them back into bondage. And so their full and lasting joy and freedom was at stake in this book. So let me boil it down to a sentence. The theme of Galatians, and I believe the central theme of the entire New Testament is that true and lasting freedom and joy are in Christ alone. The message of the gospel is that true and lasting freedom and joy and pleasure are in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Okay, I'm done. I hope today that you want now, more than you did when you came in, to study this book. I can almost guarantee you that some of you are confused about the Christian life. I can almost guarantee, not that I'm picking on you, in a crowd like this, it's almost, if not inevitable, that every one of us will benefit from a thorough study of this book called the book of Galatians. Because what is at the, what is at the heart of it is the gospel. What is at the heart of it is Christian freedom. What is at the heart of it 
is how to live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit <laughs> and not in your personal performance to try to submit yourself under a yoke of bondage that you can never accomplish or fulfill. Do you want to live that way? Which way do you want to live? Well, my friends, let me, let me say this in closing. If you want to live in the freedom and the joy and the pleasure that I said is in Christ alone, this book is going to tell us exactly how. And I'm going to tell you in advance and then probably tell you every single week that we are in this book. The way in which you become in Christ, the way in which you, that the work of Jesus Christ is personally applied to you is by repentance and faith. <laughs> Not through works of the law. Not through personal performance. But by turning away from sin. And trusting in Christ alone. Isn't that sweet? Trusting in Christ alone. Have you done that? Have you done that? Will you do that? Let me pray with you. Father, we are so thankful that we can begin this study and how difficult it is in just a brief amount of time to cover this entire book and to try to lift out of it what is central, what is the thrust in the heart of it, even as we consider the circumstances in which it was, these churches were established, and God, we can see the correlations even today in our, in our context. So we're asking you to help us. Help us to study. Help us to learn. Help us to grow. Help us to understand. Help us to apply. Help us. Oh God, we pray. And if there's one here this morning that needs to step out of the fields of sin, as it were, and make that step of faith, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart, to trust in Him alone, to save them and to bring them into a peaceful relationship with you, the true and the living and the holy God of heaven and earth. We pray that you would call them and draw them even now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen.